So, uh, so I'm here this Sunday and next Sunday. So just so you're clear, that's, I'm here for two Sundays. And then uh, I'm off doing you know, Christmas things and you're doing your Christmas things. And then um, I'm not sure exactly what's happening. The church is figuring all those details out. But uh, anyway, it has been such a blessing to be here. And so you warmly blessed me last week when I told you my vehicle woes. And uh, so thanks for all your concern and care around those things. So it's, it's been wonderful to be here with you. And just, too, every time I'm, I'm here, it seems like you're doing something else to bless the community. And that's a, a very Christ-like thing to do, uh, to not just gather in these walls on Sunday mornings, but to extend the gospel message. And you do that well, so thanks for doing that. Well, today what I want to do is, um, you know, it is December. <laughs> How did that happen, right? Uh, I, was, I blinked, and then I, it was December. So I want to start uh, today talking to us a little bit about some familiar passages and see if we can't discern the message of God from those texts to us today. And we'll talk about the tale of two kings and the rush of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, as we are in this space uh, to gather to worship you, we're reminded because of the trees and the decorations that we've entered into a unique season of the year. One that we're familiar with. We're familiar with the songs and the decorations and the stories. Uh, but God, don't let the familiarity of those things uh, callous us to the message and the wonder of Christ. So, so today, through the Word of God, awaken us to the wonders of our Savior that He would invade our space. And not just for the sake of um, a Christmas morning, but for the sake of the cross and His resurrection and the new life that this baby brings to us. So thank you. We enter now with receptive hearts to Your Word in Your name. Amen. Well, I don't know how December works for you, but my life is sometimes consumed and overwhelmed with all of the preparations for Christmas. For example, I stand here today, it's December what? Second, I have already been to three Christmas programs. That is true. I played guitar in three Christmas programs, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. So it's already, I mean, it's already pushing, right? All the buying and the baking and the decorating and the wrapping. So just how crazy is the Christmas season? Well, there are organizations that do surveys to find out how much time we spend preparing, on average, for Christmas. You'll be happy to know that the average person spends about 15 hours during the month of December shopping. Now, some of you are going, that's all? <laughs> 15 hours shopping. Okay, let's just go ahead and have some confession time. How many of you, when you're out shopping for someone else, you see such a great deal that you buy yourself a Christmas gift? Come on with it. <laughs> see, I know how you are. I know how you are. I've been there. Okay, how many of you, when you're shopping, you have done this? You have bought a gift for someone for Christmas... And before Christmas, you take that gift back to get them something else. Have you done that? We've done that a few times. We spend about one hour in the month of December simply looking for a parking spot. 
This survey says that we spend five hours wrapping gifts. I don't know why anybody would wrap gifts anymore. Just put it in one of those green bags, would you? Simplify, okay? We spend four hours preparing, licking stamps and envelopes, and addressing 40 cards. Now, how many of you still send Christmas cards? Yeah, so see? You spend about four hours doing that. We spend about one hour selecting the perfect Christmas tree, one hour digging out all the Christmas decorations, three hours to trim the tree, five hours preparing the outdoor lights and display, four hours baking, about the same amount of time tasting, (laughs) two hours on family photographs, two hours acting surprised when we open gifts. That wasn't on the list. I just thought that was funny. So I looked it up again. So in the UK, in, the 20, in 2016, they did a, a similar study. And in the UK, the total number of hours spent preparing for Christmas in the month of December is 66 hours and 44 minutes. In the United States, it's about 43 hours preparing for Christmas in the month of December. Now... That does not include the following. It doesn't include family gatherings. It doesn't include church events or children's programs. It doesn't include any Christmas parties or caroling. It doesn't include Thanksgiving or balancing the checkbook after Christmas. Okay, It doesn't include any of those things. So no wonder we get to the end of December and we're tired, right? We spend the whole year waiting for this event, this holiday. We can't wait only to rush through the whole experience. So the next two weeks, what I want to talk about is the true rush of Christmas. Not the dizzying rush of these kind of numbers, but a different kind of rush. A rush towards Christ, not a rush towards Christmas. A rush that is satisfying and peaceful, a rush that restores hope and gives purpose. The kind of rush that is found in the book of Matthew chapter 2, where I want to spend time with you this morning. To get into chapter 2, let me remind us of chapter 1. In your Bibles, if you have a physical Bible, a paper Bible, you'll know that there's, the Bible is divided into two sections, an Old Testament and a New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and there's a space in between there, and that space represents about 400 years in which God is not communicating directly in a prophetic sense, in a written sense, to His people. So when we open up the book of Matthew into the New Testament, what opens is a transitional chapter that seeps back into eternity And recalls the history of this person that is going to be born that we call Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 has the genealogies that bridges between the Old Testament and New Testament. And reminds us that in the spite of the seeming absence of God, He is actually at work. And He's doing things and He's preparing things for the arrival of Jesus. He is rolling out the red carpet even if it seems like He's not doing much. In Matthew chapter 1, we have then the announcement to Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, that there's going to be a child born to his betrothed Mary, and 
He is to give him the name Jesus, for he will be Emmanuel, God with us. And in all of this, Matthew, through the work of the Spirit of God, is is helping us understand that this Jesus has connection to the Old Testament, that he's the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament, dating all the way back to the early pages in the book of Genesis. God has been at work bringing this to pass. And the book of Matthew has a very distinctly Jewish kind of tone to it, helping the readers to understand that Jesus is, in fact, the Old Testament Messiah, bringing hope for His people. And all of that is set up in Matthew chapter 1. You get to chapter 2, and you have this familiar story of the visit of the Magi with Jesus. You know kind of the story, but we're going to walk through it in a moment. On Tuesday, I had the privilege of sitting with a gentleman. I, I uh, mentored him in the year, summer of 2001. He was an intern with me in a church. I have not seen him in eight years. He showed up at, at Crown College where I work, and we sat down to talk, and, and he's actually finishing up his Ph.D. work, writing his dissertation on Matthew chapter 2, the story of the Magi. I'm going to unload on you today. Just kidding, just kidding. But I spent a lot of time with him asking him questions about this text. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Going to set up our story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Let's stop there. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, We read that and almost don't marvel anymore at that little piece of history, right? Why did he why did he come? Why did God invade our space? Why not stay up in heaven? Was Jesus arrival just simply to signify that it's time for a new season on the calendar for the church? Was Jesus' arrival to start a revolt? Was it to cause us to have this mad rush to December the 25th? Was it so that we'd erect buildings in His name? Or we'd feel better about ourselves because we were in church on Sunday mornings? Don't rush past this little line. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Why did Jesus come? Well, the answer to that is most succinctly found in all of the Scripture, is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Whenever we come to Christmas, we almost never go to 1 Timothy 1, 15. Here's what 1 Timothy 1, 15 says. Paul, writing to young pastor Timothy, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Here's something that you can build your life on. Here's the saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When you read Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in order to save sinners, He came, right? This all happened during the time... King Herod. 
Now, when, when the author of Scripture says, when they say things like this, in the days of or in the time of, they're not trying to give us a calendar date for the event. They're trying to communicate something larger. They're wanting us to know something about the culture and the context in which the events happen. And that's true here. We're saying much more than just the names of the people or the dates. It would be like saying, in the days of John F. Kennedy or in the days of Bill Clinton, you know something about that milieu in which the events are taking place. So you know, in this case, there is a context for King Herod. King Herod reigned as king from 37 to 4 B.C. For 33 years, he was king in the Palestinian area. He was governor in Galilee for 10 years before that, beginning at age 25. He is father to Herod Antipas, who was Herod during the time of the ministry of John the Baptist in Christ. If you follow your biblical history, there are actually four Herods in the New Testament. Herod here in history referred to as Herod the Great. I refer to him as Herod the Great Madman, and you'll see why in a moment. But there's that Herod. There's Herod Antipas at the time of Christ's work. Then in the book of Acts, Herod Agrippa I in verse, uh, chapter 12, and then later in the book of Acts, Herod Agrippa II. So that's got you confused. Yeah, welcome. Here's what we know about this King Herod the Great. He was a paranoid leader, suspicious of everybody. He began his reign by a massacre of the Sanhedrin. He wanted no rivals, and so As he stepped into this context of Jewish dominance, he wanted to assert himself as the king. And to do that, he leveled the Sanhedrin so there would be no rivals. Over the course of his leadership, he murdered no less than seven people to protect protect his throne, including his wife and her two brothers. He had, speaking of wives, he had nine wives. Not nine lives, that's cat. He had nine wives, all of which to strengthen his political alliances. Eventually, there was so much conflict during his tenure as king that he had to flee, and he he fled to Rome. There, Rome, in a season of a little bit of unrest, Augustus Caesar was old in age. There was no upcoming uh, military leader. And in that context, while Herod the Great is away for three years, he befriends Augustus Caesar. And in his return back to Jerusalem to be king again of this region, he bribes Augustus Caesar with some money so that Augustus Caesar could give him the title... King of the Jews. He bribed his way to the throne. Hmm. He returns. He is still a paranoid madman. But now he has a new title. And he uses that title to whip the Jews into submission and to appease, I think, his own conscience. 
He builds, rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem. It is referred to in history as Herod's temple. But it was a Jewish temple to God. But it was named after him. So when the author of this book, when Matthew says, during the time of King Herod, you have to know something about what he's referring to when this madman is ruling over the Jews and says he is king of the Jews because he purchased that title back when he was in Rome. And now magi show up from the east, from where the sun rises, to be more literal in the text. Magi, from where the sun comes up, came to Jerusalem, and they asked this important question, where is the one who has been what? There is already a king of the Jews, Herod the Great. Who are these mag- the magi that show up? What do we know about these folks? We are told from the ancient historian Herodotus that they were originally one of six tribes of the Medes. They became a priestly tribe similar to the Levites in the Jewish history. Magi were known for their magic. We get our word magic from magi. They were the ones who, in some context, they were sorcerers, those who um, watched the stars, etc., for signs and events. They were around 650 years before Christ in the book of Daniel. Daniel is the overseer of the magi, Daniel chapter 5. Because of the connection between Daniel and the Magi, Jewish people in the first century had a favorable outlook on Magi. They felt that Magi were sympathetic to their mission to overcome Rome, for example. Eventually, the Magi became a company of advisors in the kingdom of the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians. And there became two castes of people. The Magi, which were the hereditary priests who had the authority to uh, select and depose kings. So as a group, they had authority that was over the actual king. There was a second group of leaders called the wise ones. Those were people that were elected. It sounds a little bit like something that we're familiar with in the United States. But the Magi were the supreme advisors. And so sacred was their message See if this doesn't sound familiar. That in the Roman Empire, the Magi had such authority that in the year 63 B.C., they predicted the birth of a new king of Rome. The Roman Senate took their words so seriously that the Roman Senate murdered all the baby boys born in 63 B.C. Because the word of the Magi. So one day, the citizens of Jerusalem are gathering around, they're busyness, they're doing their things, they're they're getting ready for Christmas. It's not true, They, they weren't getting ready for Christmas. They're busy about their activities, and this group shows up, the Magi show up, probably 12 to 14, don't listen to the stories of there maybe being three because of the three gifts, or one from Europe, one from Africa, one from Asia, those are all, those are all traditions that are probably myth, but there's probably 12 to 14 of them, 
that show up with all of their royalty in their caravan, traveled with a large entourage of people and gifts and soldiers for security, great pomp and circumstance, finely decorated attire, all signifying their high profession and their calling, and they march into Jerusalem, and within minutes they have what? An audience with the king of the Jews. If you wonder the authority of the Magi, just imagine how quickly they get an audience with the king. And it says in the text, verse 3, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. They show up, they march right into the King Herod. They do not bow down to King Herod. They don't open their gifts to King Herod. They don't uh, in any way worship him. He is a passing place in their journey. The star has led them there. There they are in the capital city of Jerusalem where you would expect a baby to be born. And they stand in front of King Herod, king of the Jews, and they say, where is the one born king of the Jews? Well, no wonder he's disturbed. This one born king of the Jews is a supreme threat to his throne. And we know what Herod does to threats to the throne. So they're not there to see King Herod. They know that. It's kind of like this. Let me see if I can portray this to give us the sense of what this must have been like for King Herod. This morning while I was getting ready, I parked out in the side, come over here, And a car pulls up just outside here. It's actually not one car, it's 12 cars. They're all Maseratis. And they pull up and they flag me over and they say, Hey, we're trying to find a great church in Elk River where authentic Christians gather for exciting worship and biblical preaching. Do you happen to know a place where we could go and worship? And you want to go, like, yeah, just park right out back. In fact, if you give me your keys, I'll park your car for you. Right? We're here to see a king, but it's not you, Herod. Wow. You know, it's a good reminder. It's a good reminder for all of us, I think. That when we sit on the throne, Jesus is always a threat to that throne. When we are on the throne. Jesus will always disturb people. When they pretend to be the king, when he really is the king. So will we allow Jesus to rule? That's always the question. Will we allow Jesus to rule? And not just on Sunday mornings, but to have His way with us in every area of our life. We come before Jesus and we say, here, I, I, I want to be in. I want to be a part of this movement of Jesus' people. I want, to, I want to be a part of that. Can I be a part of it? And Jesus says, sure, you can be a part of it. He said, well, what do I have to do? And you say, well, it's not, it doesn't really work that way. He says, what do you have? And we reach in our back pocket and we go, well, I've got $11.32, and Jesus says, I'll take that. I'll rule over that. What else do you have? 
I don't know. I, he says, do you have a checking account? Yeah, I got money in the checking account. He said, well, write that, all of that amount out to me. I'll take that. You go, okay. And so we write that check out to Jesus. He says, do you have anything else? And say, that's it. I, I've given you my pocket change. I've given you money out of my checkbook. I, I, don't, I don't have anything else. He says, I, that's a nice watch you have. Can I take the watch? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to cost you the watch. Okay, well, I give them the watch. You have anything else? No, I don't, I don't have anything else. He says, do you have a home? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I live, I have a place where I live. Well, then I need that. Okay. Okay, well, then I'm just going to have to sleep in the van. Oh, you have a van. I'll take the van, too. Well, Jesus, you've taken everything. All I have left is my family. Your family? You have a family? I'll take your wife and your kids as well. See, Jesus wants to be king of all of it. And once he has it all, once he, we go, okay, God, you got the house and the cars and the kids and the wife, and you got all, I give it all to you. He says, listen, I will let you use it while you're on earth. But if I need it back, I'm going to take it. You know, there are churches in the world where the moment you pledge your allegiance to Jesus, you bring the deed of your house to the elders of the church. And the elders keep the deed. And they say, you know what? You can live in that house. But when we believe that God needs that home for service, we're going to take it. So the church will call you and say, hey, by the way, we have uh, missionaries uh, coming in town. They will be staying at your house this week. Oh, but I'm not ready for it. Well, it's not your house. It belongs to someone else. You see, when Jesus comes on the scene, he rules it all. No rivals. That's a message, I think, gleaned from this text when Herod is disturbed because there's another king on the scene. Verse 4, when he got called, when he called together, that is Herod, called together all the people's chief priests, that is the Jewish chief priests and their teachers of the law, he asked them where Christ was to be born. They have a quick answer in Bethlehem and Judea. They know exactly where it is. For this is what the prophet has written. Now they quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. There is a prophecy stating where this king is going to be born. They know the prophecy, confirming the authenticity of the Old Testament, confirming and validating the fact that this Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly. We know the story. He found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go Make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Lie. You know that. There's no way this King Herod is going to let this rival king survive. So they go. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that had been seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was in Bethlehem. Fascinating. Pause there. Why did the star not stop over Bethlehem to begin with? Why did the star take them to Jerusalem 
first so they could confront Herod, hear from the chief priests, and then go the six miles, six miles from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. Why? So that we could get confirmation that Jesus is in fact born in Bethlehem as the scriptures say. Had they gone directly to Bethlehem, they would not, we would not have this little bit of information from the chief priests and teachers of the law saying, by the way, this is where he's supposed to be born. This is confirming what we know about this Messiah that's coming. So they go on their way. It stopped over the place where Jesus was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. (laughs) They worshipped this Jesus. Why not stay, Magi, why not stay in Jerusalem? Why not? I mean, there are better accommodations in Jerusalem. It's the capital city. It's got more beautiful buildings. It's the center of worship. It's the center of political power. It's a world city with rich history. It's an educated city. Why go to Bethlehem where there are shepherds? It's not famous. It's not populated. It's not cultured. It's a labor town. Minimal housing opportunities. Why bother? Because that is where you go to worship the king. Here, my friends, is the first rush of Christmas. (coughs) Magi unwilling to be detoured from anything else other than bowing before Jesus the King. And that so confronts my flabby excuses of why I don't worship. Music's too loud at church. Music's too soft at church. The preaching's too convicting. The preaching's not convicting enough. Church starts too early. Church starts too late. There's too much snow to go outside. There's too much sunshine to stay inside. Funny, because the Scripture calls us to bring a sacrifice of praise. Listen to the cost to the Magi. They traveled from long distance. It's a dangerous, risky, uncomfortable journey on the back of a camel. Have you rode on the back of a camel? They've had to get up every Sunday morning and hop on the camel and get here. They had to enter a foreign city, speak to a king about another king. They had to persevere in the search, offer themselves in worship, bring their expensive gifts, overcome the litany of distractions and obstacles. Why? So that they could worship the king. They weren't content with being comfortable. They weren't content being comfortable. The scriptures refer to the Holy Spirit as our comforter. Sometimes I wonder if the comforter doesn't manifest himself as the comforter because we've not done anything to be uncomfortable about. So though none go with us, Though the road ahead be filled with Minnesota winter-sized potholes, though the path be long and arduous, still go worship the king. And who is this king? 
Who is this second king of the passage? Starting in Matthew chapter 1, listen. He is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who saves his people, Emmanuel, God with us, king of the Jews, the Christ, the ruler of God's people, the shepherds of God's people. That's Matthew chapter 1 to Matthew 2, 6. All the titles of Jesus. So that, and that's amazing. So those magi that are bowing before this one with all of his names and all of his splendor before him, and what's their names? Not a single name. There are no names, listen, there are no names of any worshiper at the birth of Christ. There are no names of the magi, and there are no names of the shepherds. And what do they say in the presence of this king? No recorded words. They are content to show up and worship him and die in obscurity that Christ might be exalted. Now that is a noble pursuit. I like the story of the grandpa who asked the grandson, Did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? And the boy said, no, but it's not my birthday. (laughs) It's not a bad perspective. This whole affair, not just a single date, the whole affair, the grand scheme of the universe revolves around Jesus Christ and the Magi get it when they bow before Him. Now verse uh, 10 Then they opened up their gift, or they opened up their treasures and presented Jesus with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh, costly gifts. And after having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country in another route. This passage is the tale of two kings. Let me highlight them as we wrap this up. The way of King Herod, he exalted himself by putting others down even to the point of murdering relatives. The way of King Jesus, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing being made in human likeness, Philippians chapter 2. The way of King Herod, he bribed himself to the place of king of the Jews. The way of King Jesus is to be born king of the Jews. The way of King Herod is found in Jerusalem of power and culture and prestige and wealth. That's a king's town. The way of King Jesus is to be found in Bethlehem, the lowly city, away from the power and prestige, a shepherd's town. The way of King Herod was to murder others. The way of King Jesus was to be murdered for others. The way of King Herod is to be associated with buildings built to demonstrate authority and attract people and put your name on the side of the building. The way of King Jesus is to be associated with a manger and a cross, emptying himself of all authority. The way of King Herod is to be threatened by Magi and by Jesus. The way of King Jesus is to welcome Magi. Which way will we follow? So here are the lessons for today. All the creation worships Jesus, the stars that guided the magi, the foreigners, the magi, 
all worship Jesus. The stars tell of His wonder. The foreigners bow before His wonder. Matthew is making sure his readers know that Jesus belongs to all people. That He fulfills the expectations of the Old Testament Messiah. That people are worshiping the King of the Jews, not Jews. The message must seep into our own theology. That Jesus is open to all worshipers. We can't be selfish with Jesus. And while the book of Matthew opens with Gentiles coming from afar to worship Him, the book closes with a call to you and I to make sure that those foreigners still worship Him. Go and make disciples of all nations. Take this message to the world. And if we're going to sing songs like Joy to the World then let's go to the world with that joy. And if we're going to sing songs like Joy to the World, then tell our face that there's joy. You know this, right? Joy to the world. Lord is come. King, let every heart Yeah, I tell people often, if your song is a song of joy, alert your face. It's a good practice. Here's another lesson for us. Let's spend as much time rushing to Christ as we rush toward Christmas. Let's spend more time picking out, uh, let's see, we spend more time picking out the perfect gift of Christmas than we do celebrating the perfect gift of Christ. Let's not rush past Christ, let's rush to Him. Let's imitate that of the Magi. And if we have to, gentlemen, let's stop and get directions like the Magi do. But let's not miss Jesus in our rush. So take a few minutes, maybe every day, to be silent in Jesus' presence. Be willing that your name might be forgotten, that the name of Jesus might be elevated. Take time to rehearse the names of Jesus in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. Record the names of Jesus and meditate on those. Don't confuse going to church with going to worship. It's a statement I read years ago on a, an employee bulletin board that said this, In case of a fire, flee the building with the same reckless abandon that occurs each day at quitting time. It's pretty good. Let me edit it for today. In case there is no fire in your soul, flee to Christ with the same reckless abandon as we do when we go shopping at Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in the name of our Lord, mindful of the wonder of Christ our King, the beauty of this one born in a manger, helpless, and yet king of the universe. Would you call our minds to drift frequently to this Jesus this season? May we be deliberate in our rush to Him. May we take every opportunity to meditate on the wonders of this Christ. And may you be pleased May we be ones to welcome others to spread the joy of the holidays so that others may know 
this King Jesus. We give this to you and ask for your help in it. Even now as we gather around the table. In the name of Jesus, amen.